Hello, and welcome to the AMA update video and podcast. Today, we're talking about innovative ways to teach physicians bedside manner and the art of compassion. I'm joined today by Dr. Nayan Kotari, Chief Academic Officer at St. Peter's University Hospital in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Dr. Kotari, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, why don't we just start off uh, talking a little bit about bedside manner. Um, unlike many science-based issues within medicine, good bedside manner can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Let's start off by talking about what's your definition of a good bedside manner. A good bedside manner is an ability to take a proper history and perform a proper physical examination and then arrive at a proper diagnosis. Um, studies have shown that if you do that, you will get 85% to 90% of the diagnosis on almost anyone. Yeah. So I think, I think though, a lot of people, when they talk about bedside manner, do they, they have more of like uh, the personal interaction part of that? Is that part of your definition or no? It is part, small part of the mm -hmm. definition because there is nothing worse than having excellent personal manners, but making mistakes in doing the proper history and physical examination and miss the diagnosis. So you really, yes, it would be very nice to have good manners and essential, but not at the cost of science. Uh, interesting. I think that uh, that's uh, probably an interesting way for people to recast uh, the whole idea of what bedside manner is. Um, before we talk about the how, let's start by talking about the why. Um, why is bedside manner training uh, so important? And what can happen when physicians, they don't have that skill? Well, it's important because that is the crux of medicine, to interact with the patient at the bedside or in the clinic, but with the patient directly. And unfortunately, over the last 50 plus years, those skills have declined significantly. There's a lot of literature on this. This is not my opinion. It has declined. And there are a number of reasons. Um, and that affects the patient care. That uh, hurts the patient. You miss the diagnosis. There is a, I think all of us know what a placebo effect is, which means you will please the person by good manners and good thoughts, but there's an opposite called the nocebo effect. And that is when you are rude to a patient, when you are abrupt with a patient, the therapeutic value goes away or diminishes. And bedside manners would incorporate all those elements into conversation. So bedside so, manners, I'm sorry. So how do you how do you teach something like this? Well, the only way to teach properly is at the bedside. You cannot teach any other way. But like anything else, simulation now has entered in medicine. We are late in medicine. The Air Force perhaps was the early one 50 years ago, and the Navy started simulation techniques. You know, they have these ships which are massive, and they have to maneuver them in war. So they created simulation and eventually, but late, and then the airline industry picked it up. You have a billion dollar jumbo 
you don't want an intern to fly it and crash it. That's why Air Force created simulations all across Air Force. And then finally, maybe a few years ago, medicine picked it up. It's not there yet. It's very rare. Um, our simulation center is probably one of the two in the whole state. And, I'm going to talk. Uh, let's talk more about your simulation yeah. center. This is really interesting, uh, because you've established uh, an institute for bedside medicine, and it's within uh, your simulation center mm -hmm. for interprofessional learning. Take us. What What does that look like uh, physically? I think people think about. You, you mentioned an airline, for instance. What a simulator would look like there. How describe yeah. this process of using simulation to teach good bedside manner. Yeah. It, if you if you came to look at it, you will see something like a hospital, like an emergency ward. It's, it's regular rooms lighted with oxygen, aspiration tubes. It looks just like a regular ICU with stretchers. Instead of people, we have mannequins there. These mannequins, people call them dummies, but they are not dummies. They cost $120,000 each. And they are sophisticated. For example, they would react to pain. They would cry. They would shout, scream, and they would communicate with um, with the doctor. Uh, we can uh, pretend to create a cardiac arrest. Um, we did a simulation um, last year where we had a pregnant mother deliver a baby. And she delivered a baby, but during the delivery, she hemorrhaged to death. She died. And the baby died. We had um, several residents in OB what watch that. And they were taught at the bedside what to do if something like this happens. And miraculously, next week, same scenario happened in real life. And I'm glad to tell you that the mother and the baby went home live. And we all believe that it was due to the stimulation because they went over the exercise. And I can give you a dozen examples of that success. I do not think the old habit of learning on patients is valid anymore. I think if I tell my residents that if I come with meningitis and you're going to do a lumbar puncture, you better find somebody who has done it on simulation first. Not just see one, do one, and teach one. That method is gone. So if you came to our simulation center, you will see almost like a hospital ward, operating room kind, with glass doors and mm -hmm. stretchers and equipment laying around. And there we use mannequins. We have a sim man who can develop cardiac arrest, anything, arrhythmias, varieties uh, yeah. of things. And we intervene. For example, if he develops a pneumothorax, when the lungs are punctured. You can insert a tube to salvage him. We can do that on this same man. We have a same mom who can deliver a baby, can hemorrhage, can develop eclampsia, preeclampsia, all those things. We have a same junior, a 12-year-old boy who it is different in pediatrics. Mm -hmm. And we have a same baby. Same baby is, uh, I think, six months old. And we can work around that baby and program the baby for varieties of um, diseases and conditions. And mm -hmm. then the students 
and the residents practice. Um, now you mentioned but, that uh, there were only two of these, I think two of these centers. So this is not yeah. something that necessarily commonplace? No, medical schools are building them now, but it should be in every hospital. If you are having your staff do procedures, I don't think they should go directly to procedures. They should mm -hmm. learn on the same. But the second part of the SIM center is I'm more proud of is the Institute for Bedside Medicine. And that doesn't exist anywhere in New Jersey. We are the only one. What we do, we have eight or 10 exam rooms, just like a doctor's office, fully furnished with exam tables, blood pressure cuff, all that. And we have a patient bank. We have created a patient bank on the, we basically copied what they do in Edinburgh, Scotland. So some of us went to Edinburgh and learned how they do it. Very simple. You recruit patients from the community who have physical findings. So for example, somebody has severe arthritis. And we know that that is going to last forever, that those deformities. So we talk to them. Many of them are our patients. We tell them why we need them and they register with our uh, list of patients. And when we perform the exercise to teach about arthritis, we bring that person in. We give them a small stipend, but they all come for the love of it. They don't come because of the money. That money is not much. And we do these exercises along with our colleagues in Scotland, Edinburgh, Scotland, because we couldn't find a good partner here in the United States. We do work with Stanford, and um, uh, Hopkins, they are they are doing this very similar thing. So there's a good partnership. But the Institute of Bedside Medicine brings real patients and also actors who can do a script. For example, last week, we had a standardized patients, they are not real patients, who played a script of a wife of a husband who is dying and she wanted everything done, including transplant of the lung. Unrealistic. So the doctor had to go in and explain why that was not the right choice. It's a very difficult situa situation mm -hmm. to tell a wife who is desperate that your mother, your husband is going to die in two days. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Well, that brings me to kind of my other question then, which I, you know, back to bedside manner and the way that you've defined it here. But the flip side of that is around uh, issues around communication and empathy. You know, we are in simulation uh, world. Is that hard to teach that part of this or kind of more to the story you just told? Is that also part of the lesson? It's not hard to teach, but you have to teach it properly by experts who know these things. And you have to do it repeatedly. Like any skill, you have to do um, what we call deliberate um, practice. 
So you are taught in a didactic manner first. So before we start the teaching exercise, for 20 minutes, we will go over the basics. Why we are doing this? What is the science behind it? Then we bring in a standardized patient and the resident engages that patient on the script and two or three faculty members watch him and call time out now and then and interrupt and say, okay, what was right here? What was wrong here? And there are about 17 or 18 residents, students sitting there. So it's a very interactive, sometimes highly charged environment. Mm -hmm. in practice, not, not when we do it really. And then um, they practice in a different levels with different patients. We also ask the opinion of the patient, how did you feel about it? They fill out a form, a evaluation form. And one question we ask is, that, do you wish that this doctor takes care of you? And that feedback is powerful, very powerful. You may, if the resident may have done everything right, but the answer to the last question is no, then we, we know there's a problem. Mm -hmm. What's and, the uh, most difficult thing or situation in terms of bedside manner communication that you have to teach students? To be patient and to be thorough. They, they are always in a hurry because the way in which hospitals work, everybody is in a hurry. You cannot just go on around and, oh, by the way, I'm going to talk to your father. Appointment has to be made. Quiet room has to be made. Try to obtain a quiet room in a hospital. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. Quiet room has to be obtained. We recommend that you bring some water or something. The, the normal things which you and I would do if we went to a, each other's home. Just plain, simple manners. Um, we want to have a box of tissues because somebody is going to cry. So we make it available. But these are small things, but they're important things in aggregate. Mm -hmm. Is and that really part of the delivery of uh, bad, uh, call it bad news, I bad guess, news. is that? Yeah. yeah. So we, we go with it. We had a station on a breast cancer. The lady goes through a biopsy of the breast because of the abnormal mammogram. And she has a adenocarcinoma of the breast. She's here now to hear the news. And that's a powerful station because there's one thing which freaks out a woman is the mammogram. Mm -hmm. They worry about it. And now doctor is calling something must be wrong. How do you break that news that you have cancer? So there's a whole script for them. And what kind of cancer? What does it mean? Uh, what about these new fancy drugs? What are we going to do? Do we do I need a mastectomy? Do I need radiation? Do I need chemotherapy? All that is discussed in a very controlled environment. That is the key. And the attending physicians, faculty are there to guide them if they they use the jargon. They immediately stop. Don't use this. Um, for example, a simple example of a jargon is almost a comedy. President will say, we are going to give you radiation. Now, radiation to many people means Hiroshima or something of that sort. And But they have to modify the term so that they don't get panicky about, oh, my God, they are going mm -hmm. to cut my breast out. They are going to burn it and all that kind of thing. So we, we predict the responses of the patients, real patients, and then accordingly modify. It works, I can tell you that. Any final thoughts about the importance of uh, uh, getting folks to adopt 
uh, better bedside manner training and communication? I think uh, it is going to spread slowly. I mean, in the last uh, few years, I've been doing this. I already have about five, three major universities and two residency programs like ours doing it. We are collaborating it, but this is a vast country. You cannot just change that. Something has to come from center, like AMA, ACP, whichever, it doesn't matter to me, but that needs to be. And I'm glad that AMA has started certain programming for bedside medicine. Uh, so does the ACGME. They have started Joy of Medicine. Because Joy of Medicine is gone. And what little was there, the COVID destroyed it. Because of COVID, it is now okay not to examine your patient. Mm. It should never be okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kothari, for being here today and uh, for sharing that uh, very important and interesting perspective. We'll be back soon with another AMA update. You can find all our videos and podcasts at ama-assn.org slash podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Please take care.